go to Mark chapter 5, Luke chapter 9. I'm going to ask your help with this message. I want to see if I can talk you into finding a blank piece of paper or maybe even a white piece of paper in the back of your Bible, and I'm hoping you'll do something. I'm going to preach a message that I've preached quite often, but I stole it as well. I didn't steal the message. I stole the diagram, and I'll explain that in just a moment, but I'm going to need your help here. I'm hoping you'll do something, and let me uh, get your help. I hope you'll draw five circles, okay? And uh, just find your piece of paper and draw five circles, I think I'll move mine over a little bit because I'm going to need some extra space probably. And I know some of you can't see this, but I'll go over it and uh, it'll be obvious. So just draw circles like this right here, okay? And yours have to be as perfect as mine. That's getting worse as I go. So draw five circles. And it's the markers board, not me, that's doing this, okay? So you'll have five circles there that I want you to draw. And I'll get to this uh, diagram here in just a moment. Let's go to Mark chapter 5. Verse t- first of all, we're going to look at three places in Mark. Look at verse 37. I'm not even going to worry about the context because I think it's too obvious what's going on here. But in Mark chapter 5, at the raising of Jairus' daughter, the Bible says in verse 37, verse 37, And he suffered no man to follow him, save, which means except, only, He suffered no man to follow him save Peter and James and John, the brother of James. Chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 9 verse 2. I know you all are familiar with this. It's just a sort of a reaffirmation or a reminder, if you will. The Bible says in Mark chapter 9 verse 2, And after six days Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. So Jairus' his daughter, the transfiguration. Now Mark 14, Mark 14, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark chapter 14, verse 33. Mark chapter 14, verse 33. And he taketh with him Peter, and James, and John, and began to be sore amazed, and to be very Heavy. Now take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 9, please. Luke chapter 9, verse 10. Verse 10. And the apostles, when they were returned, told him all that they had done, and he took them and went aside privately. That's the key word for my message in a moment. Into a desert place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. And in this same chapter, please look at verse 28. Verse 28. And it came to pass about an eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John, and James, and went up into a mountain to pray. Three very big events in the Bible. Three of the biggest events in the New Testament. And at all three, Jesus takes with Him Peter, James, and John. And my question is why? Why Peter, James, and John? In the 1980s... um, Actually, it was probably, yeah, 1982, 1983. I was living in Texas at the time, so that's the reason I remember the dates. Uh, I was reading uh, Clarence Larkin's book, not the greatest book on dispensational truth, but the book on rightly dividing. Got to the back of that book. I believe it's in the back of the book. It's somewhere in that book. And there were these five circles. And I know you can't see those real well, but uh, those are five circles, and I hope you'll draw them. And uh, we're going to talk about them in just a moment. When I saw those five circles, 
Uh, I didn't think a whole lot about it. It was in the back of the book. And Larkin gave credit to a fellow named Robert Spear. Spear was a preacher before Larkin. And then some years later, I was in a meeting, and a fellow got up and preached and used that same diagram. In every case, I left asking myself, how did Peter, James, and John become the inner circle? That's what they're called, is, it? is that right? Peter, James, and John are called the inner circle. Now, before I get to the message, let me say this. In 1972, I moved from uh, Arab, Hogjaw, Alabama, <laughs> to McMinnville. When I was in uh, Arab, the school there was Ryan High School. Ryan High School in kindergarten through th- uh, grades, kindergarten through 12, had 170-something students total. I moved to McMinnville, Tennessee, and I went to a school that had only 7th graders, Southside School, only 7th graders, 330, 340 students. That's called culture shock. And I won't get into all the details, but I tried out for the basketball team. They moved me up when I was at Ryan. I played on the 6th grade team when I was in the 4th grade. You, you do that in those small schools back in the 60s. And so then when I got to McMinnville, I was going to try out. There's 72 boys tried out for the 7th grade basketball team. It was very intimidating. And every week the coach had 72 names in the locker room, and then he cut it down to about 36 and then about 18. Eventually he got it down to 12 players. And I remember going in there, and uh, every week you'd find out if you were going to get to continue trying out for the team until finally he cuts it down to 12. And I went there that last day, and my name was on that list. That felt pretty good, but I wasn't happy. I want to be on the starting five. I've never understood anybody that enjoys sitting on the bench. When I played softball and coached baseball and softball and basketball, I coached all of them, played all of them. If there's ten players that you need, I only wanted ten players. Because I didn't want anybody sitting on the bench. I never understood bench warmers. (laughs) I just never have. Well, then I made the high school... I ended up playing college baseball, so sports was pretty important to me. I said that because of all of what I said earlier, so you won't think I'm just completely fanatical here. But uh, I went out for the high school baseball team, played high school baseball, high school basketball, and, and my junior year as a baseball player, the coach said, hey, and, and Coach Leo Davis, I'll never forget him, he was, uh, he was a semi-pro baseball player, unique character. He, he comes out to me and he says, I need to talk to you. And he walked out to left field with me, put his arm around me, and he said, hey, he said, Ron... I need you to be the captain of this team. Now, I'm I'm 16 years old. 17 years old. I'm idolizing this baseball coach who played semi-pro baseball. I think he is the epitome of what I want to be, you know. And, And he calls me aside, puts his arm around me, and says, I want you to be the captain of this team. Can I just tell you, that made me feel pretty special. That made me feel pretty important. But it required me to be pretty responsible. Took some growing up to be in that position. I'm wondering what it was like to have the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, to invest personal time in Peter, James, and John. Literally. The Bible says here he took the twelve aside privately, but on several occasions it was just Peter and James and John. Now some people don't like to accept this, and I don't know what to do about it except tell them they're wrong. God has His favorites. He just does. I know for God so loved the world. When it comes to salvation, He's no respecter of persons. But I also know He said, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. I'd rather be on the love side of that. What about you? 
So God simply has His favorites. The Bible says in Exodus 2, He looked upon the children of Israel and had respect unto them. When you read about God as no respecter of persons, that's talking about salvation. But when it's talking about service, and who's He going to use? God's a respecter of persons. As a matter of fact, I'll go further than that. The Bible says that He loves a cheerful giver. What does that mean about the uncheerful giver? (laughs) God has His favorites. I looked up the word favorite in a dictionary, and it said a person regarded with peculiar favor, one unduly loved, trusted, or enriched with favors, one regarded with particular affection or esteem, and in a 1963 collegiate Webster's Dictionary, under favor, it said, for God to show favor, kindness, or exceptional grace. I want that. You say, I don't want to be that way. What do you want? Think about the options. I want God's favor. I preached a whole series of sermons last year on wanting and desiring the presence of God at Cornerstone Baptist Church and how to get it. Because when we show up, I want God to show up. And I want God's favor on my life. Hey, the Bible is clear in James chapter 4 verse 6. He giveth more grace to who? A humble. I want more grace. So it may be up to me whether I get God's favor And then, of course, Samuel in the Old Testament, the Bible says he was in favor with God and men, 1 Samuel 2. Mary, that angel told Mary, thou hast found favor with God. Well, if I was a young lady, I'd want that. He went on to say in Luke chapter 1 that she was highly favored. Whoa, I want to be highly favored. The Bible says about David in the Old Testament, he found favor before God. That's found in Acts chapter 7 verse 46. I want that favor. Listen, do we want the favor of God or are we content with mediocrity and carnality? Do you in your home want God to smile upon your home? Do you want God as He, the Bible says, the eyes of the Lord search to and fro throughout the whole earth? Do you want God to come by your house on a Friday night and go, Oh, that's a sweet smelling savor. That's what I want. I want it at my house. I want it at my church. Do you really desire to please the one that died for you? I hear people say, well, I'm saved. That's all I care about. Then I doubt if you're saved. If the Holy Ghost of God lives inside of you, the Holy Ghost of God desires that Jesus have the preeminence in your life. The Holy Ghost wants to be closer to Jesus. Amen. That's what they sung about just a moment ago. The Bible says in Psalm 119 verse 58, I entreated thy favor with my whole heart. The psalmist said, I'm pleading for your favor. As hard as I know how to plead, I'm pleading for your favor with my whole heart. And so in the 1980s, I saw this diagram, and Larkin gave Spear credit, and then I heard a preacher preach it a few years later. And I literally went home, and I asked the Lord, and this was probably in the early 90s, I can't remember. And I said, Lord, I want to know how to get inside that inner circle. That's what we're going to talk about today. I call this sermon, Running in Circles. Running in circles. Would you take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15? I hope you'll jot some of these things down. I hope it'll help you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to start on the outside and work our way in. And in this first circle, I want you to just write the number 500. The number 500. And this is the circle of faith. This first circle is the circle of faith. And it has to do with salvation. I'm not going to spend much time on this circle this afternoon. I'm going to assume 
that most of you are saved. I certainly hope so. But the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. And after that it says, He was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that He was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all He was seen of me also as of one born out of due uh, time. So in this first circle, we call it the circle of faith. It has to do with salvation. I put the number 500 there because it's listed here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In order to get inside this first circle, you've got to be saved. Now what I want you to understand is if I had the ability and all the equipment up here that I could, I'd put out here just complete dark black. So black, you, you could feel it. Book of Exodus. It's that dark. The Bible says you and I have been translated out of the power of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. And so you and I were in darkness. It's why I'm bothered when preachers argue with lost people. It'd be like you walking into Walmart and seeing some guy with a cane and he knocks over a big old rack of something and you chew him out. He's blind. Way off. Lift up Jesus Christ, brag on Jesus Christ, tell Him about Jesus Christ, but quit wasting your time arguing with Him about things He has no comprehension of. Amen. But once you, once you get inside this circle, again, this is all outer darkness, but oh, once you step inside, the lights are on. And, and I would like to say that the closer you get to the center, the brighter it gets and the better it feels. <laughs> And the warmer it feels. Now I know we can't live on feelings, but it ought to feel good to be saved. <laughs> and it ought to feel good to get close to Him. And it ought not to feel so good to hang around this outer circle. Well, an awful lot of Christians are hanging around that outer circle. They don't quite want to let go of some of that stuff on this other side of the line. And so... In order to move closer to the center, the first thing is to get saved. And so the Bible, how do you get saved, of course? is the question, how do you get from darkness to light? By faith in Jesus Christ. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, lest any, not of works, lest any man should boast. We talked about it in the earlier service, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, being justified by what? By faith. Now, here's the problem. A lot of people say, well, I believe in God. Well, the Bible says in James that the devils believe and tremble. So you've got to read Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 and other places. 1 John 5, John 5, 24, John 3, 36. It's on and on and on. The Bible is clear. By the way, that's the reason the gospel of John was written. If you want to help a lost man, ask him to read the gospel of John. John was written so that people might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing in Jesus, they might be born again. How? By faith. But Ephesians 1 makes it clear that faith means to trust. And I, I get in trouble with independent Baptists, but I'm just going to say it. This, this idea, I tell you, we, we've made salvation. I know salvation's free, but it ain't cheap. And this one, two, three, repeat after me stuff, it, 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 it unnerves me. You want to be saved... You're willing to trust Jesus Christ and Him alone to save you? And if He does, something's going to change. So the Bible says over there in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Examine yourselves. 
It says in 2 Corinthians 5, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Behold, old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I don't care if you get saved when you're seven, seven or 70. The Holy Spirit moves in and changes your desires. And He gives you something on the inside that you didn't have before you got saved. It is crucial that you understand salvation means change. I didn't say change brings salvation, but salvation does bring change. That is the difference. Listen, examine yourselves. Paul said that to the most carnal church in the Bible. When you do not respond properly to spiritual things, you need to find out what's wrong. As a saved man, I've been in services where people got to laughing, people got to raising their hands, people got to crying, people were going to the altar, and I felt numb. Has anybody ever been there? You know what I did when the invitation was given? As a preacher, I went to the altar and I said, God, what's wrong with me? I don't like this numbness. Y'all understand what I'm saying? I've knocked on every, we've knocked on every door in our county. And I've knocked on doors. A guy walks the door, got a cigarette in one hand, Budweiser in the other, and an HBO movie on the screen. Yeah, I'm saved, preacher. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. I've heard all of the preachers say, well, you can be saved and do anything the world can do. Yep, but you can't enjoy it. God will wear you out. Whomsoever the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son. Something's not right when you go to church all the time, but you never respond to the work of the Holy Spirit. Something's not right when you go to church and you don't get excited and you don't get moved and you sit down and watch a ball game and come unglued. You know what bothers me? What bothers me? The things that bother me, bother me. I think there are things that bother me that shouldn't. And there are things that don't bother me that should. Are y'all getting what I'm saying? I'm saying if you're truly saved, things start changing. Paul did say to that church, Therefore, if any man be in Christ. You ought to see how many times Paul uses the word if in Corinthians. I almost think he doubted them just as much as we might sometimes doubt others. Let me give you the second circle. The second circle. Uh, go to, let me get you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. I normally preach a long time right there on that first point. I'm not going to do that this afternoon. Go to Luke chapter 10. And uh, we'll pick it up in verse 1. We're going to put 70 right there. 70. This is the circle of fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. It has to do with service. You know, once you get saved, y'all start serving the Lord. And to be quite honest with you, it's not so much service as it is, please hear me, joy in service. The Bible says here in Luke chapter 10, verse 1, After these things the Lord appeared unto other, what? Seventy. That's why I put that in the circle. Other seventy also, and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place, whether he himself would come. Look at verse 17. I'm in Luke chapter 1, look at verse 17, or Luke 10, 17. The Bible says, and the seventy returned again, how? 
with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. He said to them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I've given you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall be any, by any means hurt you, notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. This is about joy in serving the Lord. And it's crucial. Now, I need to say something here. I do not think for a second that you can necessarily step inside this circle by one of these at a time. They overlap. You never leave this when you get this. I believe strongly that there's a major difference between salvation and discipleship. Jesus said, if any man come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross. By the way, you're probably not going to take up a cross if you won't even deny yourself a second piece of pie. Christians have to learn to deny themselves in this entitlement society. If any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. There is, there is that denial, the death, and the desire. And if you desire to follow the Lord enough, then you'd be willing to deny yourself, son. If you desire to follow the Lord, you'd be willing to die. But the thing comes from desire. And here in chapter Luke, it's a, or in Luke chapter 10, it's about serving the Lord joyfully. Now, you don't have to turn to this passage. Let me just read it to you. It's in Colossians chapter 3. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 and 24, just listen to these verses. Colossians 3, 23. And whatsoever you do. Y'all know what whatsoever means? That means whatever. That's pretty deep, isn't it? Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. It says the same thing in Colossians chapter 3, up here in verse 17. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Let me tell you what's wrong with independent Baptists. (laughs) They got all the truth in the world and they're mad about it. (laughs) People aren't interested in what you've got. If it doesn't have any more effect on you, then it does. You can't, you can't go to the fast food restaurant, get your order wrong, walk back up there and say, I said without cheese. Every time I come, this is what happens. Sorry, sir, we'll get it right. Let me bring it back to you. Thank you. Here's a track, by the way. When you act like that, don't give out a track. Especially with Sweet Springs Baptist Church name on it. Don't even tell them you go here. (laughs) I'm just telling you, during COVID, during all these hard times America has been facing for the last two or three years, the elections, you want to know what what most American Christians uh, worry about? I said, what bothers me? Elections. Listen, my joy does not determine, does not depend on who's in the White House. My joy does not depend on who wins the next election. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And man alive, we talk about the same problems everybody else is talking about. We fuss about what everybody else is fussing about. And people aren't interested in your tale if you don't have any joy about it. We've lost our power because... The joy of the Lord is your strength. Isn't that what Nehemiah said? We don't have much of that sometimes. I got a lady that she cleaned our church for about four years. Got on my nerves every week. She'd come in cleaning toilets singing. 
Boy, just irritate me. What's she so happy about? But she did. She had the best attitude. Isn't that a blessing? My wife's like that. My wife's got the best spirit of anybody I know. I don't care what's going on. She's just got a good attitude. I, I just, I envy her. I appreciate her. But you know us, we're not quite that way sometimes. Y'all remember, you knew Brother David Armstead. You know why that man was contagious? It was his spirit. Oh, sure, he knew music and he knew how to lead a choir and all that stuff. But his, his spirit was contagious. They couldn't resist, the Bible says, Stephen's spirit in Acts chapter 7. The Bible says Daniel had an excellent spirit. One of my favorite, vers- uh, favorite men of all times that I've known in, in 43 years of preaching was Brother Earl Hughes. Uh, Brother Danny Hall, going through a liver transplant, had more joy than a lot of people that are healthy. Those men always just, just humbled me and made me want what they've got. Isn't that what we're supposed to do in this stinking world? Live in such a way that they want what we've got? Man, they don't want it. Not with the attitude we've got. This is talking about joy in service. And then he says, whatsoever. <laughs> that's, like, that's like hauling off the trash after the kittens have gotten into it. With a good attitude. Changing the third diaper. Because you let your wife go out for a few hours. Huh? Listen, we don't have a good attitude during that. We don't even have a good attitude when we go to the church house. Amen. Rejoice, Paul said, in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Where was he at when he wrote that? Prison. <laughs> what a shame that he put... The Bible says rejoice evermore. I was, I was asked to preach in Sydney, Australia. And I was preaching, I was preaching in this church, I preached in two different churches over there, and I was preaching in this church, and I was preaching on Martha. Remember Martha this morning, we talked about Martha? And I, I was pre- he asked me to preach to the family. So I preached five days, twice a day, to the family. And I was preaching on Martha, and I sort of given Martha down the road. Martha had a bad attitude. She was bossy. Not one amen out of this whole bunch. You're sitting beside your wife, aren't you? And I was sort of giving Martha down the road. I'm in Sydney, Australia, folks. I don't know anybody there. I'm just preaching my heart out. And I'm over here preaching on Martha. And after about a couple of minutes, over here on this side of the building, I heard a lady say, Well, maybe Martha was having a bad day. (laughs) I'm not kidding. I sort of looked at the pastor and he went like this. Thanks a lot. So I just kept preaching. About ten minutes later, I got back on Martha. I don't know why. And I kid you not, second time, I'm preaching on Martha and over here, what I said, maybe Martha was having a bad day. (laughs) My soul. And so I began to try to preach on it. really don't matter what kind of day you're having. (laughs) Amen. I won't tell you the rest of the sermon. I, 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 was, I was getting ready to preach one Sunday. This was years ago, I promise. And uh, I was getting ready to preach. Hey, let me just, I know y'all know this, but don't hit Brother Logan with some bad news right before he's getting ready to preach. No, but let's wait till after church, okay? 
But this is right, this is after Sunday school, and, and I'm just standing there talking, and all of a sudden I saw a lady headed my way. Now listen, we learn to read people. This was not going to be a good moment. I mean, I could see it coming. I knew I was fixing it, and I'm begging God already. Lord, you see what's coming here. You, I could see it on her face, and then the stomping. I mean, it, it, I thought, what is she? she gonna, she's going to come down here and hit me. And she gets up there to me, she says, Brother, I just went to the nursing, she made a nursing, she got a pink out of pink out of the nurse, I told her, Mom, she couldn't bring the baby in the And that's why she was talking. You want me to interpret that for you? She said, Brother Ron, lady just brought her baby in the nursery, and that baby's got the pink eye, and now everybody in this church is going to get the pink eye because of that woman bringing that baby in there. We're going to all have the pink eye. Boy, she was mad. Boy, the Lord's good. I just smiled at her, and I said, Ma'am, I'd rather everybody in this church get the pink eyes, whatever it is you've got. I only thought she was stomping when she came down the aisle. But I, I'm serious. That's what I told her. And later on, we worked it all out. But I told her, I said, ma'am, that kind of attitude ain't going to fix nothing. <laughs> Our spirit is powerful. Would to God we had the spirit of God. Be of Good cheer. I've overcome the world. Amen. Amen. And so that circle of fruitfulness. If you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you can. I, I don't even know if I'm going to... I, I don't think I'm going to give you the Scripture on all... I'll give it to you, but you'll have to look it up. It's, you, you folks know your Bible. I know that. This next circle... I put 12 in this circle... And uh, it has to do with fellowship. And 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called, if I'm not mistaken, it says, unto the fellowship of His dear Son. Have I got the right reference? Unto the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is a circle of fellowship. But let me tell you what it's connected to. It's connected to Sanctification. Now, I'm not going to go through a treatise of the book of Romans and the two aspects of sanctification. But God saved you for a reason. And just to be quite honest with you, I think we fouled this up something awful. God made Adam for fellowship. He did not make Adam to win the lost world. There was nobody lost. He made, a, he made Adam to be light all over the world. You know what he did? He, he put some of himself in Adam. Right? First of all, he took some, some the Bible says, dust and made a man. You ever try to make something with dust? I believe he's spitting it. He's a, he's a potter. And he forms that man and then breathes into that man. And man becomes a living soul. Is that not what the Bible says? What he did is he put some of him in Adam. And Adam was the spitting image of his father. <laughs> and then he said, I want you to go forth and multiply. What God wanted was that light, that image to spread this earth. This was a dark world. 
Darkness covered the face of the earth. And God said, I'm going to light it with my image. And then, of course, man sinned and the image was marred. Then Jesus came back to that garden to restore that image so that once again we could fellowship with God. I believe it is the missing ingredient of Christians in 2022. Listen, if you're saved, you've got a relationship with God. Praise the Lord, that can't ever change. But I believe if we're serious about wanting to be close to God and serious about desiring His presence and serious about Him wanting, wanting Him to listen to us, we're going to have to get serious about dealing with sin. Sin broke the fellowship, and it still does. Are you listening to me? Sin broke the fellowship, and it still does. That's why repentance, I'm all for repentance. I believe in telling lost people they need to repent. I'm not against that, though they don't even know what the word means. I can tell you this, if they quit trusting themselves and trust Jesus, they're repenting. But we know what it means, and it means a change of heart, a change of mind, and a change of direction. And if we want the presence of God, and the favor of God, and the blessings of God, and the touch of God on our lives, we're going to have to deal with sin. And that's the difference between David dealing with sin and Saul dealing with sin, if you look at it in the Old Testament. David messed up, but David repented like nobody else repented. They asked uh, Spurgeon one time, how do you know when to forgive a, a brother that sinned? He said, when his repentance is as notorious as his sin. You read David repenting over there in Psalm 51, and he's down on his face. You can just see it. Oh, God, my sin is ever before me. Oh, God, wash me with hyssop and cleanse me and purge me. Oh, God, my sin, I've sinned against thee and the only... Independent King James, fundamental Bible, believing Baptist God, please forgive us of all our sins in Jesus' name, amen. I don't believe that'll get it. I believe we ought to loathe our sin. I believe we ought to hate our sin as much as God hates it. And we walk around without the power and without the touch and without the favor and we wonder why. It's because we're not willing to deal with our sin. And therefore our fellowship is not what it could be. I could preach on this for a long time, but I need to move on. Let's get to the next circle. We're going to put three in that circle. Three. That's Peter, James, and John. I call it the circle of favoritism. He clearly favored them for whatever reason. This is the part of the outline that I'm not too sure about. I put beside that word the word secrecy. Did you know there's some people you can talk to and trust them with information? And some people you can't. I can't spend a lot of time here, but I know that he took these three to see Jairus' daughter raised, the Mount of Transfiguration, and the Garden of Gethsemane. I believe he showed them his power, his glory, and his sorrow. I believe if you get close to him, you'll know something of his power, his glory, and his sorrow. But I believe these three could be trusted with information. I do find it interesting, when you get to the end of your Bible, it's Peter, James, and John doing the writing. Can God give you information knowing that it will be a blessing to others? Or are you just going to be a sponge? You understand the point? God knows who He can trust with information. 
And Peter, James, and John are something else. I, I understand Peter messed up big time. But uh, he was special. Now, I, I have so much more I want to say, but I need to get to this next one. Let's go to John 13. This is where I've been wanting to get. I think all of you know so much Bible that what I've said thus far is clear. I don't think it's difficult. This last circle, I put one in there. Who's the one? That's John. Okay? This is the circle of fullness. Now remember, I promise you, I went home and I started begging God for this information. I'm not sure I've got it all right, but I believe it'll help you if you'll think about it. This has to do with seclusion. I could say it has to do with separation. I could say it has to do with a lot of things, but especially seclusion and selflessness. John got in this circle. The Bible says in John chapter 13, I want you to look at it, verse 21, please. Let me just go ahead and tell you the reason this is important to me, me personally. I'm afraid that too many times my preaching helps people see how far from God they are. John helps us to see how close you can get. I would rather my preaching be more like that. I'm afraid too often we remind people of how far from God they are. But Boy, you study the life of John and he shows you how close you can get. And that's a blessing. And so in John chapter 13, verse 21, John chapter 13, verse 21 says when Jesus... Now, you're going to have to bear with me while I, while I finish this message about John. I know you know all the, many of the details about John. When Jesus had thus said, He was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Who is that? That's John. He's laying on his bosom. The one Jesus loved, the Bible says. Isn't it interesting whom Jesus loved, not who loved Jesus? I always think that's interesting. Like he didn't love the other ones. That's an interesting thing. We can't talk about it today. Not enough time. Verse 24, look at what happens here. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him. He's beckoning to John. That he, John, should ask who it uh, should be of whom he spake. He then, lying on Jesus' breast, that's John, saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought, uh, because Jesus had the, Judas had the bag, that Jesus had said unto him, Buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that we should, uh, he should give something to the poor. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. Now look at verse 23 and 24. They say to John, John, you ask him, he'll tell you. I like that. Remember when you was a kid and you want to spend the night? You ask him. He'll, if you'll ask him, he'll let me. Right? Take your Bible, keep your finger right here. Keep your finger right here and turn to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. I'm sure you know most of this material, but I'm going somewhere with it. Bear with me. So right there, I want you to keep your finger in John 13. But right there in John 13, John, John said, Lord, I'm just reading it just like the passage says. In John 13, John said to Jesus, Lord, who is it? 
Pretty simple, not hard to figure. Matthew 26, verse 21. Matthew chapter 26, verse 21. And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? My soul. Everybody wanting to know. Is it me? Is it me? Not John. John said, who's the dirty scoundrel? He knew it wasn't him. Don't you want to have that kind of confidence? Don't you want to have that kind of assurance in your life? So to save some time, if you study John chapter 18, the Bible says that Peter stood without and John went in to the courtroom where Jesus was. If you go to John 19, Jesus looks at John and says, Behold thy mother. Looks at Mary and says, Behold thy son. If you go to John 20, Peter and John are racing to get to the tomb. Guess who gets there first? John. I believe Peter was faster. But I believe the adrenaline was working harder on John. He got there first. John chapter 21... They're on the shore, and, or Jesus is on the shore, and they're out in the boat. And He speaks to them. They don't know who it is. Except for John. He said, that's the Lord. I know that voice. My sheep know my voice. The only one that recognized who it was, was John. Five times we're told, He's the disciple whom Jesus loved. You ever wonder why there's so many Johns? John Christosom, John Calvin, John Wesley, John Bunyan, John Newton. The list is endless. Go back to John 13. I'm almost through. We will have an invitation. And I'm I'm, going to tell you that I think I know my biggest problem. But first I'm going to show you this. John 13, verse 21. I hope you do a study of the Gospels. Compare them. They complement one another. They help us learn each other of those, of those four. When Jesus, verse 21, John chapter 13, verse 21. I read this a moment ago. When Jesus had thus said, He was what? Troubled in spirit. John's the only one that tells you that. You will not read that in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. John's leaning on his bosom. He knows when Jesus is troubled. I want to be so close that I know when he's troubled and I know when he's pleased. I want to know when he's bothered. I want to know when he's blessed. But you're not going to know that when you're following from afar. And so, you know, in John 21, you know the story. It's after the resurrection. He told them to wait. Peter said, I'm going fishing. Isn't that what he said? He goes fishing. Well, what's everybody do if they're Baptists? Follow. A bad spirit's contagious. Peter goes fishing. Jesus shows up. He calls Peter aside. I'm convinced of it. I'm convinced he's pretty much alone with Peter at a distance. He said, Peter, lovest thou me more than these? Isn't that what he says? And... uh, I've always wondered what these are. These could be the other disciples. Peter, you're the one that mouthed off and said you'd follow me all the way to the end. You're the one that said you'd never deny me. You acted like you loved me more than the rest of them, do you? You really love me more than these guys do? You're the one that went fishing, aren't you? 
He could be saying, do you love me more than these fish? You say, I can't believe he'd ask him that. I know people that love fish more than they love God. And they love sports more than they love God. He could be saying, do you love me more than these fish? He could be saying, do you love me more than, the, more than you love these guys? Because you, you, you took off fishing with them instead of waiting on me. I don't know what these are. I just know the problem was a lack of love. That's what I know. Whatever the problem was, it was a lack of love. Do you remember when, when, he, when he talked to Peter and, he, and he, he said something like somebody here is going to get to see the second coming? And Peter said, I don't get it. Why him? And he's talking about John. Because Jesus is going to let John see the second coming on the Isle of Patmos. Thus the book of Revelation. And you know what Jesus said to Peter for the most part? Peter, just mind your own business. He said, what's that to you? That's what he said. So I got home and I started studying this and I started praying and I started looking. And I looked up the word love because I know this is connected to love. Whatever it is, I know it's connected to love. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that word love, any form of it, loved, loves, loving, any form of the word love, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 35 times. The Gospel of John alone, 57 times. First, second, and third John, them little books you can't find, just in those three, 52 times. And I believe the Lord showed me that John's that disciple that just tried to outlove Jesus. And so why do I say the circle of fullness has to do with seclusion? The reason most people will never get in this circle is because they've got too many other loves. And they're not going to give up what it takes to get in this circle. I preach a sermon called, The One Thing That Would Fix Everything. And it's on us loving Jesus. And I'm just being honest with you when I say I think too many times that's my biggest problem is I don't love Him like I ought to. And I want to say this. If, if you and I want to get in that inner circle, if you and I want to, if we want to get closer to God, not only do we need to understand there are too many other loves, I, I really believe this strongly. I believe that's a fairly lonely place. And I don't think we like loneliness anymore. TV off, computer off, YouTube off, phone off. No distractions to spend time with Him. And I'm not talking about five minutes. I believe that's a lonely place. And I read over there in Deuteronomy 13 where God told the children of Israel this. He said, I'm going to allow some false gods in your life just to see if you really love me. You read Deuteronomy 13. He said, I'm going to allow these things into your life to let you prove that you love me. And it's my contention about me and too many others, that our biggest problem is we simply don't love the Lord like we ought to. Too many other loves, too many other things that have overwhelmed us. And we probably don't like being that much alone very often.